Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. You may be seated. This evening's lesson is an oddity for me. It's odd because I always read the text, always have, always will. But tonight, because of the uh, sheer amount of information we're about to cover, I have asked you this morning to read the text. So hopefully you have, because we'll not be doing that tonight. Uh, also, if you have not already picked up a bulletin, please do so. Because in that bulletin is an article about this chapter. And it's supplemental information that you need to know about Revelation chapter 6. We are at a very important stage in the book of Revelation. We have seen in chapter 4 that God, God is worthy. And God sits on the throne of the universe. He is in charge of all. And He is the Almighty, the Holy and just. Chapter 5 introduced us to the slain lamb that is deemed worthy to open the scrolls because he died for the sins of men. The lamb, well, the lamb is, of course, Jesus, the Christ. But with Jesus comes judgment. And that brings us up to chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 begins a, a series of three judgments from God. This evening, we'll look at the four horsemen and the opening of six of the seven seals of that scroll. Following that, in the month of September, we'll look at the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. Once again, pictures of judgment along with the seventh seal. Notice again the use of the number seven. What we will look at tonight and in September is the perfect judgment. Circle that word perfect. Judgment. By the perfect one. What follows is a description of those terrible, terrible times. Seal number one is conquest. With seal number one, we see the first horseman riding a white horse. The white horse symbolizes victory and, and would have been known quite well by, by John's readers. Why? Because of the traditions of something called the triumphs. Whenever a Roman general would return back to Rome, after winning a big battle, after gaining the big victory, he would have the march of triumphs. And he would be riding a white horse, and he would ride that white horse through the city to the victory banquet. The rider here is armed with a heavy war bow. 
and is ready for conflict. He's already, he already has the victory. It's not victory that he's hoping for. It's victory that has already been attained. You'll notice the crown he has in the Greek there. It's a crown of victory. The early Christians. The early Christians needed to know this. And so do we today. We need to know this, that Jesus is victorious no matter what the world may say and, and no matter what uh, the media may say and no matter what Washington may say, Jesus is victorious. But as we go through this lesson, I want you to remember one word. That one word I want you to remember is the word catalyst. Catalyst. We're going to look at that word in, in just a few more moments. Seal number two. Seal number two is conflict. The red horse and the rider on it symbolizes war. I talk about that in the, in the bulletin article. This is a powerful rider in that he has been given... Underline those words, been given the power to take peace from the earth and, and make men slay each other. Did you notice that he's been given the power? He doesn't have the power of himself, he's been given the power. Who only has power only because it has been given him? That's Satan. Satan has no power of himself. He can only do what he is allowed to do. The Roman Empire, the, the agent of the devil here in the first and, and second century, while victorious against many external enemies, and they were victorious, they were a war machine. And despite their desire for what was called the Pax Romana, that's the peace of Rome, that Roman Empire experienced great internal struggles throughout its existence. Note, there will be no true peace in the world until the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Christ, returns. The early Christians, they needed to know this. They needed to be reminded of this, that their life was not going to be peaceful. And so do we today. Because we today, we face opposition today. Number three. Seal number three is famine. Famine. Famine is the key to all the imagery of this seal. Uh, the color black. The color black in Scripture, uh, I, could, I noted two Scriptures there for you. I actually could note many more often indicates famine. The early Christians needed to know that famine was part of their life. It was going to be part of their life. There was going to be famines in the land. The scale that's noticed here, the scales, shows us that normal items for survival will sell at many times their normal value. There'll be no luxuries, the results of all this war and conquest is famine. 
The early Christians needed to know that. But they also needed to know that God, God was aware of what was going on. And his heart was breaking. Only the wealthy would be able to purchase the necessities of life. A runaway inflation. Runaway inflation hit the Roman Empire at various times during its existence, especially during the second century. The poor, which included many Christians, suffered the most. Because the Christians, the Christians often wouldn't, would not have a job. You see, to have the best jobs, to have the good jobs, you, you had to be part of those trade guilds. But to be part of a trade guild, you had to turn your back on God. And the Christians wouldn't do that. So they got the jobs that nobody wanted, that paid the least, and they suffered. But note, God was aware of their sufferings. The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. We face a troubling time in our world today. What's going to happen? I don't know. But I know that the world is against Christianity, and we need to be aware of that. Seal number four is death. What follows war and famine? Well, death. Death will come. Death will come to the earth because of war, because of famine, because of the wild animals, so on, so on. The imagery is meant to scare us. The pale horse, the color is a, a yellowish green. It's death. Death riding on it. Think for just a moment of the number of deaths from wars and persecution that happened during the Roman Empire. As I've already mentioned, Rome was a war machine. The one thing that Rome could do well was fight, stage war, gain victories. But with each victory came thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths. We actually have no idea of the grand total of deaths that occurred. But we believe it's in the hundreds of thousands of people who died in war with Rome. God is aware. And He... Only he can handle the revenge. The early Christians needed to know that, and so do we today. Seal number five is the martyred saints. These are souls who lost their lives because of their faith. And they cry out to God for vengeance. They cry out, how long until you judge and avenge our blood? God tells them they'll have to wait. This God, who is all-powerful and whose law is to be done, will prevail. Do not lose heart. More people would die for their faith in the future. And so the time was not yet for God to seek His revenge. 
The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. Seal number six is disasters. Words and passages like this can be found in Matthew and in Joel and Isaiah and Hosea. I was surprised. I did not even realize until I started doing the research at the number of disasters that struck the Roman Empire just in the second century. We're talking about earthquakes. We're talking about famines. We're talking about terrible storms. All happening in the second century. It was affecting the Roman Empire, and yes, it was even affecting the Christians. Because they lived in the Roman Empire. Once again, God is aware. None of this is happening in seclusion. None of this is taking place with God uh, turning His back and not being aware. God is aware. And note the sinners here in chapter 6. These sinners are running from God. They're running from the wrath of the Lamb. But as I was preparing for this message, it occurred to me there was something here that I need to point out. We're almost ready for that one word, catalyst. We're almost ready for it. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus, during his earthly ministry, what did he do? He spent his time so often among the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners. Trying to reach out to them. Trying to bring them back to God. And remember the parable of that lost son? We often call it the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember that father? That father was running to that son that was returning. That father embraced that son, and that father welcomed him back into the family. Who does the father represent in that parable? It's God. It's God. So what do I mean? Over and over again, throughout the New Testament, we hear this message repeated. And it all seems to be summed up so well when we read 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants people to repent. God wants the sinner to repent. The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. But here in chapter 6, we have sinners running from the wrath of the Lamb. They're running from the wrath of the very one who died for them. What's going on here? The answer goes back to verse 9 and 10. The scene here and in the following chapters shows God's vengeance on those who persecute His church. Hebrews chapter 10, For we know Him who said, 
vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Now remember, the major focus here in Revelation 6 is God's judgment on those who have persecuted His people. And God is telling the early church, hey, they're going to get their just, res- their just desserts. Uh, vengeance is going to be mine. If they do not turn and repent, they will be punished. Jesus told that this was going to happen. Go back to Luke chapter 6. Uh, he said, Blessed are you when men hate you. Were the early Christians hated? Yes. When they exclude you, were the early Christians excluded? Well, definitely yes. And revile you, were they reviled? Yes. And cast out your name as evil? Yes, that's what happened to the early Christians. And Jesus said, you're going to do it all for the Son of Man's sake. It's because you're a Christian. Luke 21, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. It took place in the first years of the church. Look at the book of Acts. And it was going to continue to happen, even to a greater degree. When John wrote this, if we guess when he wrote it, maybe in the 80s or early 90s A.D., we had only had up to that point two great persecutors of the church. And many people would say, well, Nero was maybe the worst of the two. That would be debatable. Both were pretty bad. But Nero was a kitten compared to some of his successors in the second and third centuries. The early Christians needed to know this. And so do we today. Down through the ages, Christians have been mistreated, tortured, and killed for their faith. According to the U.S. State Department, Christians, when we say Christians here, we're talking about Christians in the broad sense. Christians in the broad sense in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments. This is 2021. They face persecution from their governments or from surrounding neighbors simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I am now studying with three individuals that it is dangerous for them to say that they're a Christian. And my heart goes out to them. And my respect, I respect them so much because they walk a very fine line. And their lives could be snuffed out at any moment because of their faith in Jesus. This is not a new situation for believers. Christians have been suffering and dying for their faith for centuries. And Revelation here is telling us that God knew that this would happen. And it made him angry. And he was so angry that he said, vengeance is mine. I don't want to fall into the hands of a God who's going to do 
what He's going to do to sinners. Sinners who fall into His hand without ever ever, uh, repenting of their sins have no hope at all. You really don't want to be on the receiving end of that kind of anger. Genesis 12. What did God tell Abraham? I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you. God will bring judgment on those who hurt His people. But there's something else here. Something else here that I think is really easy to miss. God's judgment is not just about vengeance. It's also about reaching out to the lost. Here is your catalyst. The book of Revelation is a message to those early Christians that they will be, their vengeance will be raft upon those who oppose them, who hurt them, who persecute them. But it's also, hopefully, a catalyst to cause those early Christians to say, hey, my neighbor, my friend, my relative is in danger of judgment. I'm going to do all I can to bring that person to the Lord. This book is a catalyst to cause those early Christians to do whatever they could do to help their friends not to fall into the hands of an angry God. The early Christians needed to know this. And so do we today. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For just a moment, please join with me. I want you to think of one. One person do you know that's not a Christian. One person you know who is an erring Christian. It could be a family member, it could be a friend, could be a neighbor, a co-worker. I want you to think of that one person for just a moment. Now I'm walking away from that mic, because just in a moment I'm going to turn this mic off. And in just a moment I'm going to count to three. One, two, three. And I want us all to whisper the name of the one person that you're thinking about. Because when you say it out loud, it becomes more real. And I want this to become as real as possible. There is a gentleman that Martha knows that is probably the best person that I know of in terms of personal evangelism. We need to get involved We need to help our neighbors in the same way that the first century church was told through this book of Revelation, this is your catalyst, you get going, you speed up, you do what you can to reach out to people you know to keep that all those those bad things from happening to them. We need to do the same thing. So, I'm going to turn this off.
This book is designed to cause us to speed up our process. You know, that's what a catalyst does. A catalyst speeds up a process. We usually think of it as a chemical process. But here we're talking about a process of trying to reach out to people who don't know God. They know us. We know them. We love them. But they don't know God. As long as the wicked... Now, notice I said wicked. Because anybody who's not a Christian is wicked... Anybody who doesn't know Jesus, who's old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, they're wicked. And anybody who doesn't know Christ is an enemy. Yes, an enemy. Because if they do not know Christ, they are opposed to God, and that makes them an enemy of God, and that makes them our enemy. We don't like to think of them as enemies. That's how God looks at them. As long as the wicked are willing to repent, God will forgive. That's the message throughout Scripture. But these guys here in Revelation 6 aren't dead yet. Until they die, they still have the opportunity to repent. I was amazed at reading history at the number of Roman soldiers who became Christians. You know, so often in the New Testament, Jesus praised Different centurions. You think about Cornelius, he was a centurion. Well, they're not the only people who ended up believing. They're not the only soldiers who ended up believing. Hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers became Christians. Did you know that God often punishes people to get their attention? There are times in Scripture where God disciplined entire nations in order to get them to repent. You see it repeatedly in the Old Testament. Israel or Judah would neglect God. They would worship other gods. They would make sacrifice to idols. They would engage in all kinds of evil things, and God would punish them. Why? To get them to repent. In the Old Testament, God would slap folks down in order to wake them up. Guess what, folks? God hasn't changed. The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. He's still working on sinners now just as He did back then. John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, would not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict. Convict. What, what does it mean to convict? It means that someone has been convicted of their guilt. Well, that's not a very good definition, is it? Because I've used the same word to define the word. Let's take it a little further then. Convict is to make people feel their guilt. We're getting a little closer. That's the Spirit's job. He convicts people of their sins. He convinces them of their need for righteousness and reminds them there will be a coming judgment. That's the message of Revelation. How does the Spirit do it? In many different ways. 
He is active. Today, yes, He's active. Proverbs chapter 24. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Woe here. What? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord sees it, and it displeases him, and he turns away his wrath from him. Now why would God be displeased if I rejoice in the downfall of an enemy? And why would he turn his anger away from the enemy if I do that? If I rejoice, if I rejoice when my enemy falls, I prove that I have missed something. You see, Jesus came to die for sinners. Now, are my enemies sinners? Yes. Once again, anyone who is not a Christian is an enemy of God. Anyone. Even friends and family members who are not Christians. If they are not a Christian, they're an enemy of God. And they're a sinner. Proverbs 24, I believe, is hinting at the fact that your enemy is being punished for a reason. And that reason is not to make you happy. You know what the reason is? The reason is simply this. God is punishing your enemy so that you can show them grace. Did you catch that? God is punishing your enemy so that you can show them grace. That's why Scripture repeatedly tells us things like this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. You see, God punishes your enemies so that you can come into their lives and show them God's love and hopefully lead them to repentance. The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. I want to note the number of Roman Empire residents who became Christians. Not just hundreds, not just thousands, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You know, it's a little hard to tell people that God loves them when you're laughing behind their backs. The only way that we win sinners is by showing that we care for them and that we love them. You and I need to be constantly reminded that we are not saved so we could be pampered. We were saved in order to save others. The early Christians needed to know this, and so do we today. You see, the book of Revelation is a catalyst, hopefully to cause us to think about those people that we love, those people who are not Christians. Those people who are not faithful Christians. And to do everything possible to try to win them to God. Did you notice the final question here in chapter 6? 
For the great day of His wrath has come. And who? Who is able to stand? The only people who will be able to stand are those who are found faithful to Him. The only ones that will be found faithful are those who live a faithful life here. Are we living for God? Once again, God's simple plan of salvation. Not complicated. Anyone can understand it. As a Christian, do you need to seek forgiveness? Is your life a life that would cause that non-Christian to want to come to Christ? Are you a walking billboard for Jesus? Can people see the difference that Jesus makes in your life? If your life was the only testimony for Jesus that your friends would ever hear, would it be loud enough for them to know about the Lord? The book of Revelation is a catalyst to hopefully get us up and active. Personal evangelism works. The gentleman that I'm referring to, he's had tremendous success. It still works, but you have to work it. We have to do our part. It, does, it doesn't just come into the doors. Very unlikely will happen. It's us out in our neighborhoods doing what we can to make a difference. Tonight, if you have a need to respond, will you please do so while we stand and sing for your encouragement? Here is God.